This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 2nd of June. And today I'm joined by my uh, sniffling co-host, Dave. How are Indeed. you, Dave? Allergies <laughs> is all I will say. But is that the world? That, uh-huh. All good. Is that the world say telling you it doesn't like you? Um, pretty much, yes. <laughs> That's what it feels like when it hits. Hey, all of a sudden, I no longer feel alone. Anyway, um, enough of this uh, joyful banter. We're joined today by a guest, and we'll be talking about something that I don't think anybody ever really heard of. What do you think? <laughs> I, I think this is brand new, totally uncharted territory. Very this will be revolutionary. <laughs> We're talking with Kyle Davis, and he's the head of developer advocacy at Redis Labs. So basically, this is going to be a two-parter, and this is the first part where we go in-depth on everything and uh, anything concerning Redis and things you can do with it, can't do with it, shouldn't do with it, should do with it, and, well... Let's 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 let let Kyle talk about it. I think he knows more than we do. I think that is very true. Let's do it. So we're joined here today by Kyle Davis, uh, head of developer advocacy at Redis Labs. Welcome, Kyle. Hey, nice to be here. So tell us tell us a little bit about yourself. What what brought you to the uh, the position of uh, a dev advocate at uh, at Redis? You know, um, I, I came through it in a little different way than a lot of people did. Um, yeah, I came through it through the technology. Uh, I, I just was at the right place at the right time to really pick up Redis when it was just starting to take off. And um, you know, I was I, I can pinpoint the exact time. Like I was I was at my um, mother in law's house and I was super bored. And I was working <laughs> on this idea. I had my laptop there, and I was like, you know, I'm going to create a database. That was my my idea. I'm going to make it in memory and do all this stuff. <laughs> And because I had a whole weekend of nothing to do, no cable, snowed in in Canada. And uh, so I, I started doing this and I was like, this is crazy. And, and, and uh, you know, I, I ended up saying, like, somebody has already had this idea. And I found this, this software called Redis and, uh, you know, read the documentation about it. Now, this might be useful. And um, so I started working on my, my project and, and uh, you know, just started thinking like, oh, wow, you can do a lot of things with this, but it's not really something that, that on the first glance you would think about doing with them with it. And I started writing blog posts about it. And, um, you know, eventually Redis Labs kind of got a hold of me and said, who are you? Uh, can we pay you? <laughs> and I said, uh, I, I like money. Uh, so, yes, I'll write, some, I'll write some stuff for money that I was going to write anyway. Uh, and eventually they brought me on full time. And uh, since then, I, you know, I've been with Redis Labs for a little over three years, but I've been using Redis since 2012. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I really have uh, fallen in love with the product and, and love teaching people about it and talking uh, about Redis and what they can do with it. Because it really can, can change what you can do with software and what type of software you can build. Oh, which is a perfect segue into, <laughs> so for people that haven't heard about Redis, what is Redis? What do you use it for? Sure. Uh, so Redis is an in-memory database. That's the, the shortest definition I can give you on it. Um, yep. So the idea behind Redis is that... Um, with Redis, what you're going to do is you're going to have everything stored in memory on kind of a server that's either residing on the host where your um, your application is running or on a remote host. And um, you will store data in it, and it will be based around this whole uh, key value paradigm, but not necessarily a key value store, which maybe eventually I'll talk about that. Um, and uh, inside of that, there's data types, and they're the data types you'd probably use inside any software you're developing. So it's these kind of fundamental data types that are out there. 
and that are that are available. So it's kind of like um, you know the, the local variable in your in your application, but just stored somewhere else. And the cool thing about it, even though it's in memory, you think you know you, you unplug the uh, the computer, everything goes away. <laughs> um, it has a persistence layer, so it doesn't go away. Um, and yeah. So you get the best of both worlds. Um, but but it's really evolved, and so you had these basic things to start out with back in 2012, and then it's just gotten bigger and bigger and, and uh, more things you can do with it. Not necessarily more complex, but, but um, you know, a lot more things have been added to it over the years. And, and um, the things that I was doing in 2012 are, are still useful today, but the things that you're doing in uh, 2020 are vastly different, right? Like, like anything, things evolve. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, um, in memory database, um, the, the first thing that anyone thinks when they think in memory is, is super fast. Um, mm-hmm. But then, but what's the, so what are the, the, the sort of quote unquote standard use cases where people, you know, need in memory databases, for, you know, when is a, a traditional, you know, database for want of a better word, um, just not good enough? Yeah, that, that was kind of the impetus for people developing it. And, and you mm-hmm. know, my bit of impetus for finding it was that, that traditional databases are often too slow to provide um, kind of instant responses. Um, so one thing we, we talk about a lot at Redis Labs is the idea of this instant experience, right? Um, and the human response time is roughly about 100 milliseconds. Um, and anything less than 100 milliseconds, you're not going to know the difference, right? So it's ridiculous to, to, to say, I need to respond back in two milliseconds of your entire end-to-end application. Uh, however, your end-to-end application does have a lot of moving parts in it. And those moving parts all have to do different things. And, and usually the database is the most squeezed part of that, right? So the database has to respond back in a really, really tight performance envelope, usually in the scale of around one millisecond to provide an end-to-end experience. So your application receive, you know, sending something to the application over the network, uh, the application doing its processing, going to the database, getting things out of the database, and then responding back to the user. Uh, to get that all done in 100 milliseconds with latencies and all sorts of things like that. The database has almost no time. So anytime you want to like have something where someone clicks a button and data is fetched and then responded back to you uh, in a time that is less than you would perceive, you need Redis. So um, that could be anything from something like uh, in an e-commerce experience, your shopping cart is often stored in Redis. Um, and more generally, your session store. So every time you load a page on a website, um, this stores things like, you know, um, your, your username and, and what kind of colors you like on the screen and what your preferences are as far as, you know, maybe what categories you're shopping in um, to things like your score in a game, like a, like if you're mm-hmm. like an iPad game or something, um, all the way through to things that are more complex where you're, you're trying to do some sort of uh, more, more high level thing, like, you know, uh, retrieve all your bank statements or all your bank transactions from point A in time to point B in time. Uh, and you don't want to wait many seconds to do so. Uh, Redis gets involved. Uh, and, and other stuff too. It's all over the place. It's one of those technologies that you just can't avoid, um, you know, running into anywhere where performance is really critical. So um, it's often used. You know, people say, "What are what are we known for? Uh, we're known mm. for caching, uh, which is which is a little bit weird because it's not our number one use case. Believe it or not, it's what we kind of <laughs> early early on got really well known for. And, and mm-hmm. uh, one of my former colleagues used to say, "Well, that's because no one in their right mind puts a cache in front of Redis." Right. Um, <laughs> so it is a cache, right? It's that first layer. Um, so that's what it is. It's really just any time that you need kind of an instant uh, response or any time you need something that you may, maybe, this is a little bit of an overloaded term, but 
you need something real time, right? Anytime yep. you need something to be able to respond back immediately. Yeah. So hang on, hang on. I, I hear databases, I hear millisecond response times and things like that. So I can kind of write two A4 pages of SQL code with a lot of joins and send it to a Redis database. That's how it works, right? Uh, well, so you can do that. There's a couple different mechanisms for it, uh, but not not directly. Um, so th the way people tend to do that is they cache it, right? Um, and there's like different mechanisms inside of that. So there's like you know, uh, Redis has some capabilities that are brand new about like uh, right behind caching and things like that. But mm -hmm. the paradigm is different. It's not SQL, right? It's a NoSQL database. Mm -hmm. um, so tendency, you're, you're responding. It, it, you know, if I think about levels of abstraction, like SQL is is has a lot of abstraction from the data. Redis puts you down below. So if it, if you think of it in other terms, it's like, you know, SQL is like Java, you know, where you have a JVM and all these layers running down through, uh, abstracting you from the hardware. Um, that's where SQL is. They're kind of analogous. And then Redis is more like assembly language, but for data. So it's more like a what? Like assembly language. Okay. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. Machine yeah. code. Machine code. Yeah. The ones and the zeros, but a little bit more comprehensible. Well, not really, because we can actually <laughs> manipulate individual bits. Okay. So um, if you want to go and say, like, change the thousandth bit from a zero to a one, uh, Redis will certainly be able to do that, yeah, which yeah. there's uses for it, but it's pretty obscure. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, you just call it now a NoSQL database. Now, there are more NoSQL databases out there. You've got the, the Cassandras and the, the Mongos and the, the what, what, what have you. Uh, how would you uh, um, compare Redis with those NoSQL databases? Yeah, you know, it, 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 it is a NoSQL database, um, and it kind of, you know, the line that we all say is it descends from the key value store line of databases um, mm -hmm. because it's not strictly a key value database because it has another layer in between. It's mm -hmm. got a data structure layer. Okay. Um, so, you know, whereas Mongo is like a document database and Cassandra, this is a wide column database. Um, you know, we're kind of the, the key value and, and maybe the most representational version of it, even though we don't necessarily fit what the traditional definition is. Okay. Because I've, I've heard of these other NoSQL databases also be used as a uh, speed layer, let's, let's say, but I don't mm -hmm. ever see them being used or called a cache layer. So is Redis faster? Yeah, I mean, caching has to be as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. So... So does Redis then kind of uh, sacrifices some uh, complexity and query syntax availability to make it still lean, mean, and fast? Or how should I how should how should you see that? I'm yeah, you know, curious. <laughs> it, you know, if you look at the most fundamental like um, operations you can do with Redis, it's it's like four characters like get a and a is your key name, and that mm -hmm. might return back some values, right? So you get like five characters there. Um, but with especially the things that have come out in the last couple of years, um, I'm doing a training uh, or did training at this uh, conference we just had. Um, it was an online conference, and, and uh, you know we have a full page query that, that covers an entire PowerPoint slide um, hmm. where we're aggregating things and pulling things together. Okay. Um, so that's not, of course, it doesn't. It's not SQL with joins or anything like mm -hmm. that. But, yeah. but the key thing that Redis is really the kind of mythos behind Redis, this idea that guides everything is if we can't do something at a really high performance, we're not going to bother doing it. Yeah, yeah. So that's the evaluation if something should be included in our product or not. Will it perform in our in the performance envelope that people expect out of us? If no, then that is not a feature that we're going to support. Um, mm -hmm. So it really is about this whole idea of of here is a collection of all the different tools that you have that we can that can be done in a high performance way. Yeah. Um, 
of course, there's lots of things that can't be, you know, your cross joins the, you know, two pages of, <laughs> of uh, multiple tables with an aggregation engine and then pulling in regu regular expressions. Like we're not going to do that. Because like even SQL shouldn't do that, to be honest, but. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of things SQL can do that it shouldn't do, to be honest with you. <laughs> So if if you've got uh, a register, like we talk about registers being in memory, one of the first mm -hmm. things that people you know must think about is does all of my data fit in memory? Now, is is that a, is that a valid measurement that people should think of before they think about Redis, or is the is there some magic that can happen there as well? Uh, yes and no. There is some magic, and and you should think about it. Um, I've compared this to range anxiety. You know, when people will buy electric cars, they they, you know, they really worry. I'm, I'm going to yes. live in this many kilometers from my house, and people have the same experience with with Redis. Like, oh gosh, you know, can I fit it in memory? There's a couple answers to that. One, of course, the, the Redis can be clustered, right? So you can have a very high number of of nodes in a cluster that are sharded, each one, um, and so it can hold, you know, uh, terabytes of data. Um, we, you know, we've not really seen any. Uh, real production single database that's over uh, hundreds of terabytes. Um, we have a petabyte project where we're, we're scaling Redis to petabyte sizes. Um, and, and we're doing it a couple ways. One way that, that you don't have to worry about it is, of course, you can just add more computers to it, right? Just add more nodes and more servers, and you're, you're fine. And, and people get to hundreds of terabytes that way. Um, the, the second way is through Redis on Flash, which takes Flash memory, um, aka SSDs, the fastest kind of variety of those. And uh, creates a tiered storage mechanism for it. So uh, any any data that you're accessing, um, you get the fastest stuff and you keep it in a smaller subset and in RAM itself. And then the stuff that's less frequently accessed is then moved into this flash memory. When you want to access the flash memory, you don't have to say, give me something from the flash memory. Redis will just go and grab it from the flash memory, put it into the, the CPU accessible memory, the byte addressable memory, um, and then take the oldest of the, um, the the RAM memory and move it into flash. And so there's a lot of use cases where that means you can just get really, really big fast. But for the most part, when people are thinking about the amount of memory, it's really kind of the orange juice problem. Uh, you know, it's, it's going to cost you a lot of money if you want to have a lot of data in Redis. And so that's the decision-making process a lot of people have, is they say, oh, say okay, um, I can put everything I want to in, in RAM, but that's going to be really pricey. How can I cost optimize that, right? Um, just from an infrastructure standpoint, if you want to store hundreds of terabytes, um, your credit card must have a very high limit. So when we're, when we're talking about, so we talked about the, the data and where that fits, but when we're talking about Redis, we often end up talking about, um, you know, microservice architectures mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, many people are still going through that evolution at the moment, moving from monolithic to microservices. Now, what's your what's your take about that uh, that sort of journey, and, and what are some of the things that you you see happening? Sure, and and uh, you know, uh, this is something I've been thinking a lot about. I worked with one of my colleagues on a book, uh, Redis Microservices for Dummies, that uh, came out oh. just last year, and. Um, it's a, you know, there's a couple different things there. And, and we've talked about Redis purely up to this point, really is data storage. And mm. that's what it's used for. But there's other layers inside of Redis that are there that actually allow you to, to make Redis more of a, almost a transport. It's a way of moving data around. 
And of course, caching will come into the play as well. But um, as people are building up um, services in a microservices architecture, um, the whole idea is, of course, splitting up your the responsibilities of your application into things that kind of make sense from their, their standpoint. So you're not taking the application and splitting up and saying, this is the stuff that sends emails, and this is the stuff that generates PDFs. That's not usually the goal. That would be more of like a service-oriented architecture. Instead, you're mm. splitting it up based on kind of function, right? So uh, part of the application is dealing with, let's say, uh, you know, user um, profiles and things like that. Everything to do with that is kind of contained in one, one, one uh, service. And then everything that maybe is about fulfilling orders is in another service. Um, well, that introduces an interesting architectural problem. Um, Traditionally, my, microservices uh, have talked to each other, and the microservice architecture services have talked to each other um, through just like a standard HTTP request. So it sends it from point A to point B, and then um, the service would respond back. And that's a synchronous process. Um, Redis has a, a data structure called a stream in it. And um, so uh, this, this idea is it's a series of uh, key values that are ordered by time and sequence. Um, and this allows you to actually create an asynchronous process where you can have different services talking to one another um, without having to wait for the other one to respond, but also be failure uh, tolerant to failures. So if you have, a, for example, a situation where uh, you know a certain number of services go offline for whatever reason, it can kind of go back through and go, I missed all these different pieces of the data. Let me go and read those back and, and make sure I process everything um, and, and not have to um, you know, delay anything else. Um, the other part of, you know, microservices and how it works with Redis is that um, the microservices architecture tends to be chatty. Um, mm -hmm. So when service A is talking to service B, it's talking to service C, it's talking to service D, they all keep their own data, right? So each service has its own kind of encapsulated data. And when you're talking from one to the other, to the other, to the other, um, those are network cops, even though they might be internal. Um, if you can keep the data on your own kind of um, database uh, and not have to access it through another service, great, because you, you can maybe skip a, a step or something saying, you know, I talked to service A about this subject five minutes ago. I think the data is still valid. So it allows you to kind of optimize that because the one thing that can happen when you start splitting a monolithic uh, application, one application that kind of has some very tightly coupled pieces. Mm -hmm. uh, when you split it up, you introduce like a network between them, between what would probably previously have been function calls, um, it, which creates this this whole um, uh, you know uh, kind of a, a domino effect of of latency. So while it might really make your teams more efficient, uh, as they they only concern themselves with one set of business problems, it creates this big massive headache for your your infrastructure folks and your SREs that are trying to say like how how am I going to run this you know how this is introduced a lot more complexity and a lot more hops and a lot more chance of failure um, so between caching and streams redis can really help a lot of that um, smooth over and, and make it a a lot less of a onerous transition for people going from this way of thinking with monoliths to the way of thinking with microservices so, so, sorry, quick, quick question in between there. Uh, does that mean, a lot of times you go to microservices, you also go to message bus architectures and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Is uh, do you need one to use the other, or is one viable without the other? How does that work? Yeah, you know, there's subtle differences between between what the streams provide and what a message bus provides. Uh -huh. Redis also has this um, this uh, pub sub message bus that's mm -hmm. built into it. 
Um, so you could use that. The difference is the reliability of these. Um, PubSub is it's great for what you kind of deem as notifications, um, whereas streams are um, basically ones that are, are durable and persistent, right? So yep. um, that means that that you know, it, where, while it's a heavier operation than, than say a mess, traditional message bus, bus might be, um, you know, it, it's also something that that uh, if there's a it's recoverable, right? And the other thing that people tend to do, um, and this kind of relates to that as well, Redis has the built-in mechanisms for building queues. Um, so that's another thing that links services together. Although, you know, when you get into splitting the difference between what's a stream and what's a, what, yeah. what is a, a published message and what is an yeah, yeah. item in a queue, uh, it gets pretty um, detailed fast. They each have their yeah. own use case. Yeah, yeah. So if you've got... Um you've got an organization let's say that's moving moving towards microservices what what are the what are the key tenants in your opinion that they should bear in mind when they're making this this evolutionary change yeah um it, it's a evolutionary is a is a hard word with with microservices architecture um it's hard to evolve from a monolithic architecture to a microservices architecture um, if you're building something new it's relatively easy but yeah. that's usually the trick how do you change the tires on the car while it's moving right yeah um it's complicated you and build a new car possible. in parallel and you in, and yeah. then you 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 drive both of them at the same speed and then you you shuffle one bit of you know you shuffle the passengers out first and then the driver out then you let the old one career into a ditch and you carry on in the new one clearly that's that's how everybody does it <laughs> Exactly. Uh, you know, I would say <laughs> off of a cliff. Um, it, it, you know, it, it, it's a fundamentally different way of thinking. It's just different. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, from a standpoint of like, is it is our microservices hard to understand? No, I can give this presentation to, um, you know, I have a presentation that I can give to almost anybody, um, whether that's a business person or or somebody that's not even really involved with technology at all, and they're like, hey, that makes sense. Um, but my goodness, when you when you try to start thinking about, okay, I've got hundreds of thousands, probably tens of thousands, but maybe hundreds of thousands of lines of code and that's supporting all this stuff, mm. how do I basically throw the majority of it away and and, and move to something else? Um, and and that's a that's a great question. I think that the um, the reaction that you've seen recently within the last six months of people kind of saying like, yeah, I'm not sure this was right. I think that this should tack on for me or for us um, with regards to microservices. And and I think it is hard because it, you know, a lot of people have the hindsight as 2020 and say, you know, if I start doing this again, I'd, I'd write it and split it up into these logical pieces. But the real benefits start coming along a little bit later when you start saying, you know, what's cool about this is that I can completely take down and rebuild a section of this um, yep. in a fraction of the time that it would take me to, you know, dive, you know, shins deep into some code and figure out that everything's interconnected and I change one part of it and break something, um, you know, that I had no intent of breaking, you know, that that's the big, that's the big things that from a monolithic architecture, you don't really, you, you're concerned about all the time. Like what's the unintended consequences when you properly build an application in the microservices architecture, it doesn't matter. I, I had an experience where I was uh, one of the, the kind of sample applications we built was a Sudoku app um, mm-hmm. and um, like a giant web scale Sudoku app. So, you know, imagine being able to run millions of users, right? Um, how would you build an application like that? 
And, um, you know, as part of that exercise, we implemented the same microservice in isolation, excuse service, I should say, in isolation, um, different people, as long as we kept the kind of moving the externally facing bits the same, um, we could implement it in PHP or we could implement it in Python or Node.js. And the time it took to implement that was really fractional of what it would be. So when you start thinking about this, you have to keep an eye on the kind of long-term benefits of this. In the short term, it's, it's kind of one of those things where, um, you know, you're, you're doing an exercise and it seems futile, but eventually you'll build this muscle and, and you'll be better off. Um, so I think that's the, the number one thing for people to think of is, is the, the payout is, is not short-term. It's, it's a long-term payoff. So, I mean, one of the things that comes up with microservices, as you mentioned, is this ability to you know, refactor or change or modify, you know, a particular component that you decide, you know, this particular function needs to change drastically for whatever reason. The other thing that people think about with microservices is individually scaling different components within the, the overall architecture, you know, to ensure that each bottleneck as it's identified is is you know is resolved and as things move forward what's what do you think people um see when they're doing those kind of exercises what do you think are the things that people identify with most closely yeah you know and this is one of those things where um you're always scaling to your slowest operation right mm. you, you think gosh i need to have more infrastructure to run this one this one piece of of the infrastructure that's really resource intensive um and most of the time it's just sitting there idle uh and so microservices gives you the opportunity to say actually let's put a lot of horsepower power on this one thing or let's add more instances on this one thing um to support it rather than supporting everything else um and, and on top of that too you can have different types of you know, it's not just like give me something bigger, right? Like you have different types of infrastructure that that changes things as well. So, if um, if I look, for example, at at saying, uh, okay, I want to integrate artificial intelligence into my application, of course, uh, and I want that artificial intelligence to be GPU accelerated, which is a common thing. Do I want to, in a monolithic application, start spinning up very expensive GPU enabled um, instances? probably don't. Um, that's probably a very expensive thing. Now, if you just say, okay, well, this one part that does have some AI components to it, I can then give it an instance or a machine that has these big fat GPUs on it. I can do that, but I don't have to think about the GPU instance also ser serving somebody, you know, something very trivial, like, like, web, like the literal web server running on that, right? Um, so you can think of it that way. You know, you can only scale parts of it, or you can scale differently. You can scale out or up, or however you would like uh, for individual services, and and not have to worry about uh, how this affects everything else. So it does kind of give you that granularized, uh, you know, version of of the scaling that you would otherwise be really challenged to to get. Yeah. I mean, people can't help talk. Um, you know, start thinking microservices. Um, and there, you know, that immediately, well, usually pretty rapidly leads to talk of containers and Kubernetes and, and, and cloud, whether it's public or private. Does this, 
you know, do you agree? Do those things all all make complete sense and all line up together, or do you think that like some of the some of those things aren't necessary and 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 yeah, aren't quite as important? Yeah, I, I, well, that's what we have right now, and you know, I've been writing software for like twenty one years, and um, the thing is, things become popular and then they go away, and new things come in. Microservices architecture predates Kubernetes. Um, and so it will probably continue after Kubernetes. So right now, that's that's what a lot of people are thinking about. And Kubernetes has some real distinct advantages over some of the previous technologies that you'd see, uh, you know, um, staple sets and things like that have some really mm -hmm. interesting advantages when you look at how you do uh, microservices. Um, whereas, you know, when I when I talk to uh, have a good friend who works at a very large uh, internet search provider, let's put it that way. Um, and, and they use kind of something similar to Kubernetes, but when they're actually writing applications, they don't always think about that. Um, so I think that they are right now coupled um, in, in what people start thinking about. Um, but in the future, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think about, you know, the amount of, uh, you know, Kubernetes is not a, the, Kubernetes is not a simple system. Let's put it that <laughs> <laughs> I think people just really strive for simplicity. So I think that, you know, there, there's already kind of, you know, I think it was, um, uh, there was an article written about some of the, the, the early people who um, worked on, on Docker. And like if, if WebAssembly existed right now, we never would have made Docker, which is kind of a mm. you know, really shocking um, revelation. You know, so maybe, maybe we're going to see WebAssembly take it over, uh, and, and start really going into the space where you're going to have services written in WebAssembly and you'll have WebAssembly runtime on servers and those sorts of things will will, will be orchestrated in an entirely different way and orthogonal to Kubernetes. I think yeah. that's possible. Is it something that you're going to do tomorrow? Mm -mm. No, I mean, <laughs> there's, there's just, Kubernetes has such a lead on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it makes perfect sense. So... Thank you, Kyle. That's uh, that's part one, ready and uh, raring to go, and part two coming up in a couple of weeks' time. So, hope you enjoyed that so far. Thanks again to Kyle for uh, spending some time walking us through the world of Redis, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, looking forward to part two. Definitely. All right. In that case. That is all the time we have for today. You can support this podcast by becoming a patron. Every contribution helps. We're also on YouTube. You can like, subscribe, notification bell, all the YouTube things. Please go to www.roaringelephant.org for a link to our Patreon page. And for more information about this podcast, you can follow us on Twitter. Check out the at Roaring Elephant tag and send your feedback to podcast at roaringelephant.org. Until then, my name is Dave. And my name is, I want me some microservices architecture, Yon. And look forward to talking to you next week. Goodbye. See you then.